Bible, I would invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, that's page 721 in the church Bibles. We've been working through Mark's Gospel for quite a while now, verse by verse, and so this morning here we are in the 53rd verse of the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, page 721, 721. Okay, let's hear God's word. Verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. When the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Amen. Let's pray together, please. All we can do is nothing of worth. Unless you bless the deed, vainly we hope for the harvest tide till you, God, give life to the seed. So, Father, we come again to these verses, which are familiar to some of us, and for others they're not. Regardless, we're in great need. I'm in great need of your grace as we turn to the Bible together to understand and to take in what is taking place here, what it meant then, what it means now, and what it will mean for all eternity. This whole exercise is a great privilege. It's amazing and calls for a ready mind. We have to see Jesus Christ here first. We have to consider our sin, your love, how the cross alone changes everything between us and you and others, and how self-righteousness, how religion can just ruin everything. So the soberness of this account, it can't be overlooked. It's terrible. We have to see ourselves in this story. We're in that room saying what we shouldn't, and at the same time, if we're in Christ, we cannot overlook the fact that this was your plan to show us how well-loved and cared for we are all because of Jesus. Father, you are so good. You are impeccable. And we rely on that truth now. As we need help, I need great help to take this all in. And so we would ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, to all all but the eyes of faith, the, the public ministry of Jesus, as we've read, seems 
as if it's going from bad to worse. Everything seems as if it's crumbling. And in that, we learn very early on in our studies in Mark that when Jesus Christ steps onto the stage of human history, the Jewish people were being taught that a person's works and a person's prayers and their worship and their devotion to the temple, that was their key with God. And if you did that right, then you made yourself right with God And then God would make it so your life would be right and bright. And all of that stuff was based on external works and not a person's internal true state, which only God could see and therefore properly judge. Now, if you're thinking that's not so much different than popular Christianity, which tries to feed us the line that says, okay, the more of the religious do-gooder you are and the more pleasing to God a person is, God will be obliged to grant you you whatever you want. So what is it? Fame or fortune, nice things, quiet life, great kids, great husband, great wife, all kinds of goodies because you've been so good. So when God sees that you're so, quote, into him, he opens up the spout where all the blessings come out and he drags you underneath it. Loved ones, that is a very selfish, psychotic, and dishonest way to live. And besides, 1 Corinthians 4, what does a person have that they didn't receive? And if they receive it, again, 1 Corinthians 4, what does that have to do with their behavior ultimately? And if they didn't receive it, why in the dickens are we going to give an account for what we have and what we did with what we have on the last day? So you see, Jesus steps into that says, no, no, your problem is much worse than you know. Those religious external mechanisms are false comforts. And it cannot even, if you're honest, it can't even quiet your soul, let alone appease God's right wrath on sin. And besides, remember what Jesus said? He taught. What does it matter if a person gains the whole world and loses his soul by locking themselves into some false teaching that mostly promises only creature comforts? In other words, listen. It's possible to have lots and lots, right? It's possible to have a really, really, really good life and still not be right with God. And that is a very indictment on the instructions that they, the Jewish people, were learning from their teachers. And it's an indictment on the lion's share of people in that room that Jesus was in that we just read of. So street theology at that time drew people's thoughts about God. So when they viewed Jesus... And they see his life crumbling. They came to the conclusion, well, wow, Jesus must have done something really, really bad for God to put him through these paces. This was what Paul said in Galatians, the scandal of the cross. Which is why, and if you think about this, the only person who's quoted in the Gospels of Jesus not being guilty was a Roman soldier and a thief on a cross. So Jesus started out pretty good. Very popular in places. He had that traveling miracle road show. Sometimes he even served free food. But now he's in the garden. Remember, he's distressed. He's filled with anxiety. He can't even keep his legs. He's just a shell of a man in the garden. And by the way, Jesus' leadership principles? Well, that's a big fat joke. Because all his trainees had fallen asleep. When he said, stay awake, none of them stayed awake. And one of them... One of his trainees is on his way to portray Jesus with a kiss, right? For a few pieces of silver. That's not good. Jesus, you cannot publish a leadership book (laughs) with that kind of baggage. And now he's arrested. 
He's taken into custody with a high priest. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's distressed. He's deserted by his friends. And he's supposed to be God's son. God's man. Doesn't look good at all. So as I said, to all but the eyes of faith, Jesus, this whole Jesus thing, it looks like it's dead. It's done. But it's not. God's plan and God's purpose is being worked out here. This is part of the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. He was considered punished by God, right? When all the people convened and looked at Jesus, he's guilty, and that's why this is happening to him. Therefore, and this is so important to realize, Jesus is not a helpless victim here. Rather, he is the obedient son. Because when you take it all in and you look at the whole story, you realize from a theological perspective, if you would, from the eyes of faith, Jesus has purposely, on God's command, set his face towards Jerusalem. None of what is taking place here takes him by surprise. He's been telling his disciples, remember, guys, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to die at the hands of cruel men. So again, Jesus is not a helpless victim here being held by, you know, dark forces which he has no authority over. Rather, by his word and by his deeds, Jesus makes it clear that he is in charge of all these events. He knows exactly what is going to happen and he knows exactly what is happening. And loved ones, sound doctrine does that. You understand what I'm saying? When a person knows God and a person understands who God is and what God is not, and how God works in the world, things become a little bit more clear. Which means Jesus' humiliation here, it was not his misfortune. It was his achievement. I'm going to say it again. The humiliation of Christ, it wasn't misfortune. It was his achievement. I mean, you understand the best that the powers of hell aligned with these anti-Christ, anti-gospel people in that room, the best they can do there is only on this side of heaven. It's only temporal. Death, never realizing it was all part of God's plan. Remember Joseph in Genesis, it was kind of the same thing. Joseph tells his brothers, what you guys meant for harm, by golly, God meant for good. In fact, if you step far enough back from the story, you see that Jesus himself is responsible for the circumstances that he finds himself in. Now just take that in moment, take that in. Jesus himself is responsible for the circumstances. His obedience to the plan of God pushes up against the depravity of man, and man fights back hard, and they think as things are moving along, oh, we've got this. We've got this guy. But remember Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Paul or Peter preaches this was God's deliberate plan, and his providence and his foreknowledge is behind all of this. And Jesus understands this. Let me just give you two examples. Chapter 11, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, because he was tired, rather, Jesus was purposely tying himself to an Old Testament text, Zephaniah 9.9, which said, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So when Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, the message was clear. I am your king. And many people, especially the religious leaders, they understood what he was saying. He then goes into the temple. Example number two, he confronts the sickness of the temple. He starts tipping tables, teaches a lesson which the leaders never taught using the same scripture that they used. And then he says openly, you guys are making a mess of my father's house. My father's house is a house of prayer. 
So, so you want to say to Jesus, Jesus, do you realize that when you say this is your father's house, you're making yourself equal to God? They knew that. And Jesus knew that. One more example, chapter 12, the parable of the tenants. Long story short, this was a story about the religious leaders who taught, uh, who thought, excuse me, that God's house was their house. And when God's son comes in to clean house, he's not welcomed. So they murder him. And verse 12 of chapter 12 says, they perceived that he told the parable against them. And of course he did. Looking for a fight, Jesus? Well, yeah, kind of, sort of. So on the human level, you would want to say to Jesus, listen, if you keep doing that stuff, you're going to get arrested. Don't you realize what you're doing? Don't you realize what's going to happen to you? And of course, Jesus would respond, yes, of course I know what's going to happen to me. This was God's plan. Now you see the paradox there? From the human perspective, the whole Jesus thing is finished. It is as good as dead. And we humans do that, right? Things move along really good in our life, somewhere in our life, and things are just awesome and all of a sudden something stops and the whole thing looks like it's upside down and we're like well they're done he's over with it's finished however from the eyes of faith theologically it's all moving according to God's plan therefore it's going to move to that great final uh, climax and it's breathtaking we have two words we're only going to work through one word and that's the word confrontation And confrontation, you'll see if your Bible's open, begins in 53. That is what is taking place here. It's a confrontation between Jesus and the highest ruling religious council of the Jewish people. Right? The high priest, verse 53, the chief priest, the elders, and the teachers of the law. This is some 70 religious men otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. Now, they don't all have to be there, all 70, 71, 72 they had a quorum, but we get the sense that most of them are there. And you should know that in strict legal terms, this wasn't really a trial. It was a preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing looking for probable cause on Jesus in order to have a charge so they could take to the Roman authorities as the Jewish leadership understood that, that taking a, a blasphemer to the Roman authorities, that's not going to do next to nothing. So what they did since they didn't have the authority to sentence Jesus to death, which was what they wanted, and they knew Rome did, they had to formulate a charge which could justify the death of Jesus of Nazareth by the Roman court. Okay, so because of that confrontation, as you suspect, they have a little conspiracy going on. And it's the conspiracy of the religious court with all their unlawful, evil actions being pressed onto Jesus and we know that this just didn't happen all of a sudden, right? This is not just early Friday morning they're decided that they're really, really mad at Jesus. This has been going on for a long, long time. There's a song that says, I knew I loved you before I met you. This is, I knew I hated you before I honestly investigated you. This is what they're doing. So way back in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out with the Herodians and they began to build this plot on how they could murder Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 8, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard what Jesus was saying, and they began to look for a way to kill him. It's amazing, isn't it? 
And the buildup matters, right? Because in verse 55, do you see it there? The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. In other words, now think this through. They already have a verdict. He's guilty. They already have a sentence. Death. The only thing they're missing is what charge are they going to bring against him? It's crazy, isn't it? Think about that. By the way, three times they changed the charge against Jesus. So, does that sound like justice? They've decided that he's guilty. They've already decided he should die. And now they just need to find some, quote, witnesses to support them in their decision. This is the complete opposite of um, innocent until proven guilty. But again, verse 55 at the very end, in their search for evidence, they did not find any. In other words, you do, do not have a group of people on a quest for truth. They're, they're not interested in discovering who Jesus is and if he's actually the person he claims to be. No, this is just a group of people who've already decided before they walked in the room. And now they're just going to orchestrate testimonies to feed that evil, which will underpin their assertion, attempted to justify their conclusion so that Jesus can put, be put to death. Now, that's pretty human, right? And all of it's being done in front of who? The very God they claim to serve. Now, I want to say how dark is the heart of man, right? How dark and dangerous just flat-out religion is. Because that kind of thing is not a new perspective. The, this perspective that I just said is not exclusively tied to first century uh, Jewish ruling council. When a person comes into a situation with their mind made up already and simply tries to find, quote, witnesses to underpin their false assertion. I mean, you get a group of people in a room to decide something, I guarantee you many people go into that room with the answer in their head and they just need to find something in there to, to build up or, uh, or approve of their assertion that they have. So there's all the difference in the world between genuine and honest investigation, between actually seeking facts, between genuinely seeking the information to discover who Jesus is and what Jesus, or why Jesus matters, than what we have here, which is the council has already determined that Jesus is guilty. They've already determined he has to die, and now we just need to come up with some kind of charge. Again, that's very, very human. And it makes a person wonder, right? How, where do you find these witnesses? Matthew, Matthew said that they were on a search, seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So this was like star search gone bad, right? Mark tells us, verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So how do you get people to do this? Do you pay them like they paid Judas? Do you promise them favors and perks, right? Do you post an ad looking for liars? We'll pay. Or probably, you know, people want to curry favor with the Sanhedrin. They're very influential people. And that's pretty human, especially with children in the playground, right? Uh, I want him to like me more. I, want, I need some help with my life, so I'll lie about Jesus. Or maybe the Sanhedrin just muscled them a bit, right? And when they ask the person to testify, right, who's up at 3 a.m. in the morning? <laughs> Which is roughly the time that the trial was going on. 
And was that person who was told to testify, knowing they're giving false testimony, do, do you think that they would even think about the fact that they're actually lying? In a religious hearing, they're going to lie? D- do you think this is the first time that the Sanhedrin did this kind of thing? Come on. Really? They're good at this. They're good at this. I don't know if you, you read, have you been reading about El Tampo? I don't know if I'm saying it. He's the Mexican drug lord that's in, going to court right now. And in some of the previous cases, they found out that he was bribing people with millions and millions of do- dollars. Even officials from the Mexican government being bribed. It's crazy. So the conspiracy here is very, very clear. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a step back just for a moment. And I want you to see that this confrontation between, in essence, man-made religion versus Christ-given salvation, this is at its highest form, this side of heaven. This is a big battle because this is man as man trying to justify themselves, having no need of a Savior, specifically Jesus Christ. And that confrontation, when it happens, will always end up wanting either a Jesus done completely away with or a Jesus less than who he actually is. Now think through that. So either know Jesus, just get him out of the picture, or let's have a Jesus who's less than the Jesus of history and less than the Jesus of scriptures. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus healed the paralytic and he told him, son, your sins are forgiven. And it wasn't that the Pharisees didn't believe in forgiveness. It was when they said only God can forgive sin, they were not prepared to see Jesus as he was divine. And it's the same thing with every other man-made religion where Jesus is either a nice man, he's either a created being, he's a good example, he's almost God, he's a God among other gods, but he's not the God as in the only one, Jesus Christ, who can grant forgiveness of sins. In other words, when the Bible says salvation is found in no one else, religion says, well, not so fast. And again, when Jesus said prostitutes and tax collectors will enter into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you, religious people, that Jesus offers mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment, they would say, listen carefully, they would say then, along with the Muslim and the very conservative religious person, people don't need mercy. We just need to get tougher on immorality. That's what they would say. And they'll toss whatever the verbal equivalent of of stones and say, you know, how could you do that? Or don't you know how hard I've worked at trying to be good? Why can't they? I did it. Why can't they? Or the other side of that, no one needs mercy because everyone is just fine. Everyone is forgiven automatically. Besides, it was their parents that did it to them. It was location, their job. It's because they're poor, because they're rich, they're stationed alive, which makes them so bad. It wasn't them. So either Jesus is soft and squishy or he's just like a showpiece and he's not really needed at all. And you see, unless we have our Bibles and unless we pay attention to the story, pay attention to our times, unless we're actually reading our Bibles, we look away from ourselves, we will not get what I just said from the narrative. We'll simply read this, we'll walk away from it, and we'll sound like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who said, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like the Sanhedrin. Never realizing 
the, the hostile reaction of men and women to Jesus of Nazareth in that room, in any room, has a long, long heritage to it. That by nature, men and women are opposed to the story of Jesus of Nazareth because it assaults our pride. It insults our pride intellectually because it's asking us to believe that a person, a young man at that, who lived so long ago, who died naked on a cross, is a savior of the world. Right? We've been to school. We've studied history, anthropology, psychology. We're much more further along than they were way back then. We're not bound by that um, archaic way of thinking. Men and women are getting better. They're getting better all the time. You see, so by nature... Intellectually, this is offensive, but it's also offensive morally because when Jesus steps onto the scene, he's painted a picture, you're never going to be good enough for God, that you are out of alignment with the perfection of God, that we violate God's command and we're helpless and we're hopeless and we can't fix ourselves, and that is offensive to men and women. It's offensive to religion, to bow down beneath a Galilean carpenter as the king of my life, who walked this earth some 2,000 years ago, you'd want to say, really? Don't you have the internet? What's going on? And in verse 56, we have the high point then of this hearing, which is going to underpin the charge, which will soon lead to Jesus' death. Verse 56, many false testimonies, but their testimonies didn't agree. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? They're in the preliminary hearing, They're trying to build their case, and one person says Jesus did X, and one person said Jesus did Y, and their testimony could not converge, right? Jesus did this, Jesus did that, and please don't tell me that we have to arrive at the truth by consensus, that the eyes always have it right. The high priest would say to himself, well, well, that didn't work. <laughs> Let's get two more people in here. Same thing. Didn't work. Let's get two more people in here. A succession of people, if you line them up from start to finish, couldn't reach a conclusion. Finding it incredibly difficult to frame a charge against Jesus. Verse 57, we're told, some stood up in the room and perjured themselves taking specifically his words on the temple in Jerusalem. Remember? I take that out of context and they lie about what he said. In fact, Matthew and Mark have two different things being said about what Jesus said about the temple in three days and all that. But you'll notice verse 59, yet even then, their testimony didn't agree. One of the commentators said, it's harder to agree on a consistent lie than it is to tell the truth. Kids, listen to that. It's harder to agree on a consistent lie than it is to tell the truth. And you know, if they really wanted to the, the hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, which seems like it would be important to religious people, right? They would not have had this night court thing. And they would have, in adherence to their own law, they would have said, Jesus, we're going to give you some time to gather some witnesses. This is a little bit of conjecture on my part. Let's say Jesus did that. Got some people to come in and testify for him. And the first person would come up, and and the high priest said, what's your name, ma'am? And she goes, well, that doesn't matter. I'm the widow widow from Nain. And I'm here to testify to the fact that Jesus Christ raised my son from the dead. And the high priest was like, you know what? You're a woman, and a woman's testimony doesn't count in this court. Get out of here quick. Anyone else? Well, yeah, my name is 
Bartimaeus. I used to be known as blind Bartimaeus. But I want to testify to the fact that I was blind, but Jesus Christ healed me and he made me see. Who are you? You spend most of your life as a beggar. Get out. We need some influencers in the room. And here they come. I was a paralytic. Jesus healed me. I was a very sick woman for 12 years. I spent all my money on doctors. Instead of getting better, I grew worse. But Jesus Christ healed me. My name is Legion. I used to cut myself and I used to abuse my body. I'd run around naked. Not anymore. Jesus Christ sat down with me and he healed me. So you see, they did not want honest testimony. And I'm not kidding when I ask this question. Do we? Which Jesus do we want? Do we want the Jesus that we've made up in our head? We want our like tribal Jesus? Or do we want the Jesus of the Bible? It is a huge question. In some ways, we answer that question every day. Verse 60, the high priest, he steps in, right? Things are not going good, so he basically says to Jesus, okay, verse 60, are you going to answer these testimonies against you? Verse 60, again, what is this testimony these men are bringing against you? In other words, say something, Jesus, right? Say something. Verse 61, Jesus remains silent, and he gives no answer. Why doesn't Jesus defend himself? Why? Two reasons. They're both exceptional. Number one, there was no reason in legal terms for Jesus to answer the high priest's questions because the witnesses did not agree. Therefore, legally, Jesus was under no obligation to say a word. They knew that. He knew that. And concerning the temple, uh, reason number two, Matthew and Mark, as I said, they have different testimonies about what people say. And let's say Jesus did explain what he was actually saying. So guys, when I said that whole temple thing, what I was saying was, you bury me, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. Now think that through. What if he said that? Well, then Jesus could have been regarded as some kind of, you know, sideshow Bob escapologist. And at the dawn of Christianity... There would have been people all over his tomb, thrill seekers, right? Hoping to see a really cool trick. Get some goosebumps. Here, is he coming out of the tomb? Is he coming out of the tomb? This is so exciting. And what a windfall that would be for the evil one, right? The beauty and the dignity of the resurrection just ruined and reduced by thrill seekers. People selling whatever, banners, t-shirts, we were there when it happened. You know, there's people who walk on hot coals and they sleep on a bed of nails. That's not our Savior. That's not our Savior. So you see, Jesus has this passive silence, and it's purposeful. It's well thought out. Ultimately, what does he want? He wants to fulfill his Father's word. Remember the prediction in Isaiah? The one who would do what Jesus would do, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. What about your rights, Jesus? What about them? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So he sat there in silence with all that vitriolic, bitter exaggeration and lies and twisting of his words. When all that was just spewing out. Another room, right? 
where Jesus is completely devalued. You know what I'm talking about? The beginning of chapter 14, when the lady had her big bottle of perfume that was so expensive, and she breaks it rightly over Jesus to prepare him for his burial, and everybody's like, he has a waste of money. He doesn't deserve that. What are you, crazy lady? Another room where Jesus Christ is devalued. But this room is a religious room. So Jesus goes as the Lamb of God to bear the full wrath of God poured out upon him and at in order that people who come to Jesus Christ and they ask for mercy, they can be what? What's the song? Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. They can become children of God. If there's no cross, that is not possible. Remember the song? Jesus is like, everything I do here, I'm doing for you. I'm drinking the cup of God's wrath in order that you will drink the cup of God's blessing. I'm taking the punishment that you deserve in order that I could provide forgiveness that you could never, ever earn. And people who say, Jesus, you're right, and I'm wrong, and I believe you, that that should have been me, they become God's children. And loved ones, I want you to listen. This is, this is for the Christian. Whenever we sin, whenever we sin, we are just like the Sanhedrin. And we're saying, be gone, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have no authority here. When we neglect his commands, not doing what he requires as individuals or as a church, we're saying, be gone, Jesus Christ, you have no authority here. When we frame, listen carefully, when we frame our life on subjective religious inward impressions, and that is our highest order over the plain truth of the scriptures, we're saying, be gone, Lord Jesus Christ, you have no authority here. And when we think that we no longer need to be on the search for truth, that we've learned everything there is to know about Jesus, we are saying in a really nice way, be gone, Lord Jesus Christ. You have no authority here. But listen carefully. If I ended the sermon there, we'd all go sad, right? I would. But this is a gospel. However, thanks be to God that when we do those things, and we will, Christ at the cross He takes all that rebellion in. And what does he say? My dear child, I paid for all that mumbo jumbo. And I forgive you. And I can help you. I will help you. And by the way, by the way, there's nothing wrong between me and you at all. There's nothing wrong between you and God at all because I took care of that completely at the cross. That's the gospel. That's good news. I think this is true. The more we study the gospel, the more we find that it's unlike anything that we could ever know. And it's always new. And what we see here is is that not only does Jesus forgive us and promise to help us, but it's like taking a traitor, forgiving him, Bring him into the house, give him supper, clean him up, and before you leave the house, you tell the trader, here's the keys to the house. That's the gospel. So the whole room in the high priest's house is set to appear as if Jesus has no authority at all in the room. But he does. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has all authority in every room. 
Final question and we're done. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Do you see it there, verse 61? In Luke's gospel, it says, the high priest says, I adjure you in the name of God. Are you the Christ? In other words, Jesus Christ, I am putting you on oath. I'm going to make you swear to God, right? The preliminary trial was a big trial was a big joke. So let's just get to the heart of things. You come into town on a donkey. You come into the town tempi- uh, turning tables, and you made your declarations. I'm going to ask you right now before God, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And that'll take us to our second point, his declaration to which we're going to come to next time. Well, just one last thing and we're done. The original readers this gospel was meant for was for the Christians in Rome. They would have been the first readers. And at the time Mark writes this letter and sends it to them, they are under intense persecution, right? And they are dying and people are suffering and they're thinking this whole Jesus thing is, is to all but the eyes of faith, it's all over with. I mean, Christians are falling left or right. And for some reason, God's letting it happen. And their lives are under great strain, right? Because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. But add to that, and listen carefully, we tend to forget that they're still dealing with indwelling sin. That when all that persecution is happening, they're still sinners. And yet, what does Paul do? What does he do when he writes? Well, if you get right to the end of Romans 7 and the the beginning and end of Romans 8, he uses words like, you were predestined by God. You were called by God. You were justified, glorified by God in Christ. To ground the reader in the truth so that this beatdown that they're going up against and their indwelling sin, which sometimes could confuse them and say, the reason why this is all happening to me because I've just been a bad, bad boy or a bad, bad girl, and God is really angry with me. Paul's like, think it through. Think this through, that God is working out every one of his purposes. So at the very end of seven, Paul's like, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And he goes, thanks be to God who gives me the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he lists some things. He says, what can separate us from the love of God? Trouble, famine, death, the supernatural world. Can anything separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? No. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Not because of you, not because of me, but only because of Christ. Christ alone. Christ alone. And you see, when a person honestly begins to understand that, beyond the deep well of of rich joy and contentment that will start to bring in their life, they will have a stability that is otherworldly, and they'll look at the world just like Jesus did in a whole new way. So when he's on the cross and he looks at all those people who hate him or calling out for his death, what does he say? I forgive you and 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 I forgive you. This really hurts. Physically, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And if we're in Christ... 
That's one of the great privileges. So I started out saying that we were in the room. It's real important that you understood this because if you didn't understand that, then none of this makes sense. None of this makes sense. It's like, oh, thank God that Jesus died. Now, thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Father, with you there is so much grace and there's so much forgiveness. And we would pray that you'd be merciful to us who were born in sin and cannot but sin and fall short every day. Forgive us, please, Father, beginning with myself, of our many transgressions. And thank you that in Christ they count against us no more. Thank you that you made us heirs with Christ, through Jesus Christ. Your beloved Son was delivered over into death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. Make that mean something. Make it mean, beginning today, more than it ever has before. Kill the moralists in us every day. Just beat that beast down. And may we be people of grace because we realize that we've been saved by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.